0: Good morning, Grace Bible Church. It is a privilege to be able to be back with you this morning. Um, To our visitors, we're glad to have you amongst us. We're glad that the Lord have led you this way. And what a blessing it is when God's people are able to come together to worship him. We're able to come before the Lord, our God, with high expectations for what God is about to do with his word. And sometimes that's seen immediately. Then there's other times where we're able to look back and remember the things that we have heard and we're able to see the evidences of God at work in our lives. And so we're going to continue to look forward to what God is about to do in his word. And so if you would, please turn with me to Hosea chapter 10. This morning, we're going to continue in Hosea. But while you're turning there, I want you to think with me for a minute. Because sometimes the world can beat us up, the world can beat us down. Sometimes the weightiness of life feels too heavy. What about you? Have you ever felt that way? Someone may feel that way even now. What about you? I want us to consider Hosea for a moment. Imagine with me what he must have felt like as he prophesied to God's people, God's covenant people. His ministry involved being the voice of God to the people of God. He was obligated to speak out against sin He was to speak out against the people that had shamed the name of God. But in doing so, he would never see any real conviction or real change. This must have weighed heavy on his heart, filling him with great grief and discouragement Imagine talking to a people, trying to encourage them, but in the telling to them their need to look to God, you've become discouraged yourself. This, this brother would have uh, preached year after year and would see the people fall deeper and deeper into sin. These were the ones he loved. He cared for the people of God. These were the ones he ministered to. He opened that they might hear the word of God. And so imagine the fear that came upon. Hosea, as he relayed the message from God, repeatedly mentioning the death and destruction coming upon the people. But there's hope. There's hope if they would just repent. Let us look at Hosea 10 that we might see much more. Beginning at verse 1, hear now the word of the living God. Israel, a luxuriant vine that yields fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear the guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king. What he could do for us. They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. He, its people mourn for it. So do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried To Assyria, as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high place of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up. On their altars and they shall say to the mountains, cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please. I will discipline them and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, tumult of the war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as shall men destroyed Beth Arbol on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall be done to you. O Bethel, because of your great evil, at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we have heard your word. And now we pray, Lord, that your word would be made plain to us pray that you would give clarity and understanding that even the little children will be able to understand be able to grasp the truths that are found within Lord by the power of your spirit give us hearing ears give us seeing eyes that we might leave a changed people that we might remember our salvation we might remember to repent of our sins look to Christ our Savior the author and finisher of our faith speak to circumstances speak to all that we are that we might respond in obedience to you giving you the praise the honor and the glory in Jesus' name, amen. To, to have, uh, I've entitled today's sermon for a guide All Hope is Not Lost Yet If You Repent. To follow the flow of the sermon, I've, I have four points. Number one, a false worship. Number two, a false repentance. Number three, a fortunate opportunity. And number four, a false trust. As we consider our text, you might be fed up. You might be sick and tired of Israel's continuous. Sin before the face of God. However, don't think that we are far off from what they've done. What I mean by that is we tend to sin also before the face of God. Now we may not be doing the same things, but we share some of the categories of sin. Another thing to keep in mind is if we have in some way felt disturbed by their constant practice of sin and disobedience, how much more is God himself experiencing even greater and more intense grief than we are if we as human beings who are able to sin how much more is God if we feel this because of what they're doing how much more is God feeling it being holy and righteous and just and so For God to feel that way and still extend his hand of mercy and love to still seek to woo after his wife that been cheating on him. We're able to see this kind of love towards us. So with that being said, Let's dive in the text with our eyes wide open. Point number one of false worship. In this chapter, the first thing the Lord exposed was Israel's spiritual decline. In other words, the people of God became spiritually sick. They were weak. They became frail. The reason being is they had a significant number of worldly possessions. They had a number of things that they owned, the things that made them comfortable. As they increased in the things of the world, they decreased in their devotion to God. To worship God, to worship God means to recognize him for who he is and attribute and express to him recognizing God through one's adoration, praise, thanksgiving, living a holy life and service. As human beings, our primary call is to worship God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now listen again to verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. As Israel experienced prosperity, he became a destructive vine. The vine is known by the kind of fruit it bears, whether or not it's good or bad. Israel produced rotten fruit for himself. As more fruit became available, more altars were established. Instead of depending upon God for their needs, they trusted in idols. As the land produced for them, they made much of the pagan gods. They built altars and worshiped them. They are doing this despite what God said to them. If you turn back to Hosea Seven, you would remember and see these words in verse 2. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. They were practicing false worship before the face of God. And we see this made clear in verse 2. There, the text says their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. The Lord reminded them so many times through Moses many generations ago with warnings alongside their material blessings. He warned them that strong temptations to forget the Lord will come and it will seek to cause them to depend on themselves rather than God. Listen to Deuteronomy 8, 19. There Moses instructed the people of God in the text he states, and if you forget the Lord, your God. And go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today, you will surely perish. Notice the stupidity on their part. They had a fool's perspective. We can relate. We've done some foolish things in our lives Despite the warnings that we've received, haven't we? Amen. That should be a mighty amen. (laughs) So these Israelites didn't listen to the warnings just like we didn't heed our warnings. And because of it, they took themselves and produced for themselves more pagan altars for more pagan worship now the Lord is known and they know the Lord and how he is known for providing for them they call him Jehovah Jireh the Lord provides they call him El Shaddai the almighty God, the all-sufficient one. This is what they called him. And yet, they're taking their adoration, they're taking their praise, they're taking the glory that belongs to God, and they're offering it it up as pagan worship. We're, We're able to know that they... They knew God in this way, and just one, in Genesis 17, 1, we're able to see this this context, this idea. In in, in Genesis 17, 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, excuse me, appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God identified who he was in the beginning. The father of faith, if you would. And so these people coming from Abraham, born as God's covenant people, known as God's covenant people, they knew it was passed down. They knew him. It was God Almighty, and they were to walk before him blameless, not like all the other nations. We're able to see it again in Genesis 35, verses 10 and 12. The Lord said to Jacob, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name so he called his name Israel and God said to him I am God almighty be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give you And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So history reveals to us that the Israelites knew that it was the Lord who prospered them. But they changed their perspectives despite their knowledge. Despite their knowledge of the truth. They changed their perspectives and they believed the lie and instead gave credit to dead idols. Because of this bogus faith and false worship, God declares in verse 2, Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord would not tolerate false Worship. God himself would turn the idols to rubbles, rubbish, I'm sorry, to rubbish <clears throat> with divine retribution. And then in verses 3 through 10, we see a false repentance. Even when the Lord brings destruction upon the various forms of false worship, the Israelites continued in sin and offers false repentance. In verse 3, they perceive their, weak, their weakness and sense a need to have protection for they are once again without a king. But notice how they shifted as if they really wanted change but argued for needing a king And admitted to not having one because they didn't fear the Lord as they should. What should they do at this point if they found themselves in sin? They ought to repent. They should turn to God. But listen to verse 3 again. For now they will say we have no king for we do not fear the Lord and a king. What could, what could he do for us? Did you notice how they, they faked as if they wanted repentance, but they never intended to repent? That, that's why they ended up in verse 3 saying, a king, what could, we, what could he do for us? They were the ones who, who asked for a king. God was providing for them. God was instructing them and guiding them. And, and they said, we want to be like all the other nations. We need a king. And here it is. They had the almighty God. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And now they're saying, we, we need a king again. But what, you know, what, what was the king going to do anyway? And so they had no intentions of repenting, but the Lord saw right through their lies and their fake sorrow. In verse 4, he states, they utter mere words. With empty oats, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the pharaohs of the field. The Lord rejected their statements and declared them as worthless and useless Promises. If they would be, if they would but turn to the Lord, He would restore them. However, these were stiff necked, rebellious people. So I ask the question do we have anything holding us back? The scripture teaches us to rid ourselves of every weight and sin that so easily. Besets us. In other words, the writer wants us to feel like we we want to be able to lift our legs high when we run this race of faith. We don't need sin hindering our stride, We we don't need sin keeping us back from being successful in the way God wants us to be successful. So is there sin in our lives that could be potentially holding us back because we are holding on to it? Because we love it? Could we possibly be taking part In some form of idol worship. One dictionary defines idolatry as the worship or adoration of anyone or anything other than the Lord God. Idolatry includes the worship of other gods, such as those of the nations surrounding Israel, images, or idols. And the creation itself. So to sum it up. Everything other than the Lord. If worship. If given adoration. Is idolatry. So do we love anything or anyone more than God? If the answer is yes. We are participants of idol worship. We become idol Worshippers practicing, practicing, practicing that which is an enemy of the cross of Christ Israel loved their possessions the question is do we love ours are we learning from the people of God who have gone before us they love their idols instead of Bethel being the house of God, it became the house of iniquity. Instead of being Bethel, it became Beth Aven. The place that once was sacred had become a place of offense and dishonor. It became a house of wickedness and pagan worship. These people loved their idols. Will will, will we become saddened when idols are removed or things that will keep us from keeping our focus on God? Will, Will we become angry when these things are removed from our hearts? If so, we can also be participating in fake repentance. If we are angered over sin being removed, We haven't truly repented. If we agree, but in our hearts of hearts are angered because of what's being taken for us, knowing that it's wrong, knowing that it's not good, then we haven't truly repented. And so this was the Israelites response in verse five. Uh, verse 5 it says the inhabitants of Samaria trembled for the calf of Beth-Avon you see that its people mourned for it and so do its idolatrous priests they had an adoration for their idols they love their possessions it's a reminder to us to be careful how we're walking before the Lord with the things we own. And he goes on to say, those who rejoice over it, it, it gave them confidence. It, it made them happy in a sense. And it says, those who rejoiced over it, over its glory, for it has departed from them. It's as if God says they just don't know. It's going to leave them. The very thing that they think is going to make them happy is going to leave them. This was Israel's response to the removal of the pagan work, the pagan gods. But according to verse 6, it's going to get worse. In verse 6, it says, The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame. And Israel shall be ashamed of its idol. Though Israel is... Shame over their idol being removed and carried away to be given to a foreign king as a gift. They never felt convicted over their sins against God. How awful that is! They have a strong desire for the things that they're losing to pagan worship, and they feel nothing for what they have done. Before the face of God. And so. God will, will. deal with them swiftly. Notice what it says in verse 7 and 8. Samaria's king shall perish. Like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon. The son of it. The sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow. Up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. Essentially, they would cry for help and deliverance, and no one will be able to save them from God's hand, from God's judgment, from God's discipline. Here we see that Israel is deeply concerned over the consequences of sin, fake repentance, but is not deeply concerned about sinning against God, a holy and righteous God. We see this in in verses 9 and 10, for it reiterates Israel's continuing sin from one generation to the next since the days of old. In essence, they've been practicing sin from the days of Gibeah. But in the end, God would judge his people for their sin. And in verse 9, it states, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust Overtake them in Gibeah. When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. The Lord disciplines because he loves righteousness. He loves his people and he, and he does not wish For them to end up as ruined sinners dead. Therefore, in his rich mercy, he wants change. He wants correction. He wants discipline or punishment so that his people would begin walking in the right way. The children of Israel, while deep in sin, remained Israel. But they were going to be slaves again. They must learn that this is what happens when they indulge in themselves in ease and fulfill the desires of the flesh. The pleasures of the flesh leads to all kinds of corruption. Instead, they should have grown up in their faith. They should have grown up in the knowledge and in the grace of God, but instead, they pleased themselves rather than worshiping, walking in obedience before the face of God. This leads me to the next point, a fortunate opportunity. Every day, as long as we live, we are fortunate enough to have an opportunity to do what's right and to do what's best before the face of God. These are the kind of works we ought to aspire to grow in and excel in on a regular basis. These are the kinds of fruit we ought to see in our lives in being believers before the Lord our God. We ought to sow good seeds so that we might reap a good harvest with good fruit. But you know what it's going to take? It's going to take hard work. The Israelites must repent to be in right with God, but they must break up, as the scripture says, hard-heartedness. They must break up hard-heartedness in their hearts. They must trust themselves over to God that he might cultivate their uncultivated hearts. They need God's good seed in order to have and to harvest a plush and vibrant love. A love and devotion that captivates them. They must first turn. But they can't experience the love of God without first turning to God. And so listen again to verses 11 and 12. The text says, Ephraim was a trained calf. They loved the thrush, And I spared her fair neck. In other words, Israel wasn't always like this. The disobedience, the worshiping of pagan gods, they they weren't always this way, sinning against God. At one time, they used to be a vibrant vine, full of good fruit. They used to be disciplined and well-trained In the service of God. They used to be a compliant people. But things have changed. And they became stubborn. And wild. And unchanging. So the Lord states. But but I will put Ephraim. To the work. To the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. In other words, God will harness them so that they can't be as wild as they could be, as sinful as they could be. The Lord is extending his mercy to them. The Lord is being kind to them. God is giving them a fortunate opportunity. A fortune opportunity to change, to repent. The Lord is extending his wish for them. His wish for them is to change. We see it there in verse 12 when the Lord says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground. For it is time, it's time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. This is God's wishes. This is God's desire, not wanting anyone to perish, having a desire to save. The people of God must be sincere. They must be sincere in their hearts. They must repent. And we must make sure that our repentance is not led by our feelings and our emotions. Because it can misguide us. In other words, we can't trust our feelings and our emotions to the point we're all in. I'm I'm not saying we can't use them. God has given us them for a reason, but we must guide them with the word of God. God wants genuine repentance. Tears are a good start, maybe. But tears doesn't mean a person is genuinely repentant we know that Esau shed tears after he lost his birthright after he lost his blessing there weren't tears of being sad of what he had done he was committing tears I mean he was shedding tears because he had lost there's a difference and so there needs to be sincerity in repentance sometimes we may have strong feelings and other times we may not repentance is real when it's true one author states the primary evidence of genuine repentance is not subjective displays of emotion but objective acts of submissive obedience. So so whatever way we feel if we're not being submissive if we're not being obedient it doesn't matter the tears don't matter. You see? Spurgeon states, and I quote, the true penitent repents of sin against God, and he would do so even if there were no punishment. When he is forgiven, he repents of sin more than ever, for he sees, change of perspective, more clearly than ever the wickedness of offending so a gracious God so the more our perspective change the more we will see our sins being offensive not only to God but even to our own selves that's why Paul could say I am the chief of sinners we can Come right along with Paul and say, me too. Well, I am the chief of sinners. This basically is a matter of whether or not we are trusting the Lord. And this leads me uh, to my last point. This is a segue to my final point of false trust. A false trust can be defined as forsaking God and trusting in self or relying on other things or objects in a dependent or needy manner. Let me say that again. A false trust can be defined as forsaking God and trusting in self and or relying on other things or objects in a dependent or needy manner. That means trusting in human strength, trusting in resources rather than God. That it means trusting in a false outward form of religion. You know, the checkmark kind of religion. I did that. I did. I'm, I'm having a great week. Defining one's goodness on the basis of self righteousness. It's a false trust. Um, It also means trusting in one's righteousness instead of Christ and his finished works. After the Lord gave his people an invitation to repent so that they might share in the Lord's good harvest, they they would, without delay, They dove into the deepest depths of iniquity. After God had offered them a gift, after he extended them his hand of mercy, they slapped it down and they turned and continued in sin. They did not want the good fruit that God gives. Listen to verse 13 through 15 again. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruits of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitudes of your warriors as if they're trusting in their military strength and not in God. Therefore, the tournament of war Should arise. It's strange that that they think they're strong because of themselves and because of their warriors. God will turn on them and declare war against them. And He said, "It says in all." And it will arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbol on the day of battle. Mothers, I'm talking about a slaughter there. Mothers were dashed into pieces with their children. They didn't spare anyone. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel because of your great evil at dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off this is a tragedy for the people of God for them to lose generations because of the decisions of those who have gone before them this is a tragedy they held on, and they were once again deceived, they held on to their false hope by falsely trusting in themselves rather than God. Because of their disobedience and stubbornness, they were invaded. All that in which they trusted was destroyed. All the things they placed confidence In was destroyed. The kings they wanted instead of God would be earthly kings, who ultimately would be destroyed. And these kings would eventually enslave them and slaughter their women and their children. But this, these are the kinds of seeds. They sowed. So this begs us a question. Are we sowing for ourselves righteousness? Are we trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we made him our king? If we don't know him today. Haven't trusted him in our, as, trusted him as our Lord and our Savior. The question is to you. Are you allowing God to be your righteousness? Or are you trying to earn your own righteousness through your own good deeds and works? My friend, you will you will fall and you will fail. We can't trust in our own confidence. And so what one needs to do is Look to Jesus Christ for salvation and be saved. Look to him for yourselves. Your mother can't save you. Your father can't save you. Your only hope is turning to Christ and trusting in his finished works. He came to save sinners. He came and he died for sin. To pay for sin... Once and for all, his blood was shed for everyone who will have faith in him. He was buried. He rose again, is seated at the right hand of the father. His works are finished. And for all those who trust in him can have new life. Not by your own doing, but by the life that he provides. And so look to Jesus for yourselves. Place your faith in him and be saved. Seek the Lord that he may come and shower you with righteousness. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. You see the desire of God? You see what he wants for us? So He says that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will check out the mercy. He will Abundantly pardon he sets us free those whom the son sets free shall be free indeed what a great privilege the Lord Jesus came to save this again is a reminder of the fortunate opportunity what a great opportunity you have this day to receive him as Lord and as Savior and to walk out of the door forgiven of everything you ever done, having it paid for in full and everything you would ever do in life would be covered by the blood of Christ. Christ alone. That's The fortunate opportunity. And so receive the Lord today so that you might have hope out of true worship. Hope out of true repentance. Hope and genuine trust in God. All hope is not lost yet. If you repent. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We know your word is for your people. Convict us, change us. We know that your word satisfies. For you said that men ought not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.